hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello everybody. This week is the 10th and final episode in our Get Me Another Star Wars series in which we've attempted to chronicle the cycle of science fiction films that came in the wake of Star Wars' record-breaking success in 1977. Today we're going to look at three films that came towards the end of that initial run. But before we get to that, I want to preview what's ahead in the weeks to come. We here at Get Me Another, at the behest of our esteemed yet vaguely threatening board of directors, are not quite ready to leave Star Wars behind. So we are going to do a series of bonus episodes that will be released periodically looking at some films beyond science fiction that followed in Star Wars' wake. In particular, many of these will come from the fantasy genre where Star Wars had a particular influence. The first of these bonus episodes will debut two weeks from today, and we'll examine two fantasy films from 1981, Clash of the Titans and Excalibur. And then, two weeks after that, on August 2nd, we'll be debuting the next series of Get Me Another, which will examine the cycle of films that began in 1991 with John Singleton's landmark Boys in the Hood. But before all that, we have three films to talk about today, and we begin with the 1987 live-action adaptation of Masters of the Universe. At the far end of the universe, there is a planet ruled by a being of utter evil. And there is only one man who dares challenge him. They are locked in a battle to the death. A battle that will take them across the heavens. Stop him! A battle that will finally be fought. I want them to get down and brought to me! Across the face. Police! Nobody move! Of Earth. I think I'm gonna need some backup. Can you show us the way? Of course. No! No! Julie! From a distant galaxy, they have come to Earth. Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor. Only they have the powers to be. Masters of the Universe, live the adventure. Masters of the Universe represents a first, forget me another, the first movie we've discussed from Canon Films. The company run by Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, who are responsible for a significant number of low-budget, but always interesting movies over the course of the 1980s. Rob, I know both of us are big Canon Films fans for sure. And I see those names, Golan Globus production, and I get excited, Chris. Oh, that logo. I just like that logo that yeah. comes in and the like the, the C. And, uh, it's so great. Now, Masters of the Universe kind of came from a late era. It's kind of a late era canon film when they were trying to produce some more bigger budget films, which led the company into financial difficulties. Masters of the Universe was, along with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, uh, which came out the same summer, were sort of a tipping point for canon. You know, maybe you could argue the beginning of the end. But, um,. Masters of the Universe, written by David O'Dell, who worked on The Muppet Show and wrote the classic Jim Henson film The Dark Crystal, 
a film which we will be discussing on another one of our Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episodes. Uh, it was directed by Gary Goddard and stars Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor, and Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McDeal as two characters nowhere to be found in the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe TV series. Uh, the genesis of Masters of the Universe goes back to 1976. Now, this is I think this is particularly interesting and unique. When toy manufacturer Mattel passed on the opportunity to produce toys for a then-unreleased science fiction movie called Star Wars. Big mistake. Huge. Huge. Um, as, you know, Kenner eventually won the Star Wars license and, you know, the rest is history. And as with the wave of films we've been discussing over the course of this series, uh, there were, which hoped to replicate Star Wars box office success, there were numerous toy lines that tried to do the same for Kenner's Star Wars action figures. One of them was a Conan the Barbarian-esque line of toys developed at Mattel initially called the Lords of Power, which was changed by the time toys hit the store shelves in early 1982 to Masters of the Universe. Uh, and, you know, I, I have really fond memories of the Masters of the Universe toys. Like, I really... Those action figures were unlike anything else at the time because they were, they were bigger than the, the three and a three and three quarter inch Star Wars figures. They articulated in a different way. And I mean, I was a huge fan. Me too. They could smash together in a much more satisfying way than you could with uh, Star Wars or G.I. Joe toys. Oh, definitely. And just the poses felt like, they felt like they were comic book images made into three dimensional figures. There was, a, there, was a, there was a something about them that was just, it was really dynamic and interesting. And... Uh, the toy line was an immediate success, and soon development began on an animated series to accompany it. Filmation's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe debuted on September 5th, 1983, and holds a few significant distinctions. It is one of the first cartoons based on a line of toys, and one of the first to be sold directly into weekday syndication, as opposed to airing on a network during their usual Saturday morning programming block. Uh, and it was a huge hit, and it merged elements of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, the core concept of having the power to transform yourself uh, into your sort of inner true self. It's very similar to Billy Batson transforming into Shazam. And it, I think it, it really struck a chord. Uh, and the synergy between the Masters of the Universe toy line and the cartoon was one that many properties would soon attempt to replicate. G.I. Joe, Transformers, Thundercats, and many others... Uh, all kind of came out of the get me another Masters of the Universe, uh, you know, uh, uh, logic. Um, and of course, the next the next step after that was to bring He-Man to the big screen. Not simply as an animated movie, but in live action. Enter Canon Films, who touted 1987's Masters of the Universe as, quote, Star Wars of the 80s. Rob, did it turn out to be Star Wars of the 80s? Um, not on our earth, Chris. Um, <laughs> it did not, it did not do so well uh, uh, yeah. for many reasons. Um, and, but I will tee this up. I like this movie, but yes. it yes. is, is we talked a little bit, uh, you know, in texting back and forth. And I think this is a great eighties kids movie and a terrible masters of the universe movie. I think all of that is true. I think, I think it is not. It, it, it in no way is a good it, 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 a good Masters of the Universe movie, and and I think part of it is 
they didn't use they, they had the series and the toys had built up this mythology over the years. Now, I'm not saying that the live action movie had to be slavishly devoted to that, but in a sense, it's a resource. It's a resource to draw from, and they really didn't. Um, and in fact, from what I've, I've, I've the research I've done, uh, the designers of the film specifically didn't want the movie to look like the Toys R cartoons, which they considered, quote, goofy. Um, <laughs> and apparently in the early stages, there were more classic characters, including even She-Ra, but they were all cut prior to production. And, and I guess there was a logic of, well, we can use the movie to introduce new characters, which can then be made into action figures, but none of the characters they really introduced in the movie were worthy of being made into action figures. You, you, you weren't rushing out to get the, the Gwildar. Uh, oh, Gwildar. Oh, figure. yeah. Oh, we'll get to him in a second, because, oh, yeah. I, I mean, oh, God. Um, I mean, part of the problem is that the movie feels kind of cheap. Like it doesn't, you know, and part of it, they, they, they elected to set most of it on earth. Uh, and I guess that, you know, that, but even still, it kind of feels cheap. Um, they blew all their money on that throne room set. Yeah. I mean, what, one example of that is that at some point it is set up that, uh, what Kevin is going to be playing at prom with his band. Yes. Uh, and we go to the gym and it's set up for prom. But you never get prom and never have to pay a bunch of extras to be there. Honestly, there was a, there was a, you know, at, at some point, you know, the bad guys invade Earth and, and they take over like downtown and there's literally nobody around to see it. <laughs> like, yeah. honestly, we see more citizens of Eternia than we do of Earth in this movie. And it's so bizarre. Um you know, I mean, it's and, and the movie, you know, it starts out, it's, uh, you know, it's the classic battle between, you know, He-Man and Skeletor. And, and uh, you know, what happens is very early in the movie, they send He-Man and company to Earth with this cosmic key, which can open basically a wormhole to anywhere. And, uh, you know, then Skeletor is trying to hunt them down because, you know, he wants to get, you know, get the cosmic key back and get He-Man back. Um, so you spend, you know, the first 10 minutes on Eternia and like the last 20 minutes on Eternia, but the middle part of the movie is all set on Earth. And, you know, it's just, like I said, it, it just feels so, in, in some ways it's not unlike the first Thor movie. Uh, you know, structurally, it's like, oh, you, you, you send them to Earth and, you know, and, and you kind of have the beginning and the end in the, in the exotic alien locale, but it's just kind of the, the not-so-good version of the first Thor movie. Um I mean, that said, there's stuff I like this movie. Don't get me wrong. I, I like it, and I think you're right. I think it's a good kids' film from the 80s, but not a good Masters of the Universe adaptation. Yeah, if this thing had nothing to do with He-Man and it was called Cosmic Key or yes. something, I think I think its reputation would be much different. I don't know that it would have been a monster hit back then, but I, I feel that more people would have uh, perhaps found it now. And uh, I just... It, it, it has the tone for me of like the monster squad it's not on the same level yes oh yeah it feels a lot like the monster squad yeah, it, it feels really a does. lot like that to me yeah um, and um but you know obviously that movie whole whole other level that's of a whole other amazing that follows and get me yeah. another goonies i suppose yeah. um you know it's and, and it's got some really good performance like frank langella is great as skeletor uh, I think Meg yes. Foster is great as Evil In, and Dolph Lundgren looks the part of He Man. You know, it's it's uh, you know he's he, it's funny because in this movie He Man is the least interesting character. Everybody else is 
he just he's just kind of there. And, and I will say with um the the two kids from Earth that they kind of uh, you know bring into the story who are in many ways the protagonists and major characters. Um, they feel like they should be number one and two on the call sheet. I don't know if they were, but um, they're I, I really like their chemistry. They're great. I mean, Courtney Cox is great. Robert um, Dunn Neal, who's later on Star Trek Voyager, yeah. really good. Um, yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's unusual in that often a movie like this would have um, actors in those roles that couldn't necessarily carry it. But I think they do so quite admirably. No, and and, and again, the, the casting of this movie was not really the problem. It's Oh, I, I, oh, I want to mention something before I forget. Uh, there is a scene with... with uh, with with the two with Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan Neal, uh, in early in the movie where they're in in his car, and the song playing on the radio, I have to point this out, is "Living in a Box" by the band Living in a Box from their album Living in a Box, and I just it's one of those <laughs> '80s classics, and and uh, I uh, I have I would be remiss if I left out that "Living in the Box" "Living in a Box" makes a prominent appearance in this movie. <laughs> um, as, as do ribs. As uh. do ribs. Yeah, because Courtney Cox works at a rib place, and there's a, there's a, they, yeah. there's a lot about the ribs. Um, there's there's so much Gwildor, which is a character uh, that they introduced for this film that was not one of the Masters of the Universe. I guess he's kind of like Orko from the animated series, but more annoying. Yeah. Um, there's so much Gwildor in this movie, and they say his name so many times. Who are you? I, I am Gwildor of Thenor. Gwildor. Gwildor. Gwildor, hurry. Gwildor. 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 Gwildor, over here. Gwildor, get back there. Gwildor, Gwildor! Gwildor! Come on, Gwildor! 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 Uh, and there's yes. also a lot of the cop, uh, Lubick, played by James Tolkien, who was also in, uh, he was the principal in Back to the Future. Uh, he was the, uh, the the commander of the, the aircraft carrier in Top Gun. And and I, there's so much Gwildor and so much Lubick in this movie and I can't understand for the life of me why that is. I just I don't know. I it's, I God I don't know. Yeah, I mean they're they're not necessarily my favorite characters. Gwildor at least um, is, is really all around the cosmic key stuff, and he's there yes. to be a little a little comic relief. But I I think this is a good spot to when when I said the Monster Squad tone. But what makes this a little different from that is that. This movie truly is a live action cartoon for kids. And that's yes. the level of that's the level of the story, that's the level of the stakes. And um I'll just say for me there's nothing wrong with that, but this is not a movie that's challenging the whole family or something. And it wasn't, you know, that's not what it's doing. But at the level it's operating, um I it's actually for me very well written in many aspects. Um, you start the story uh, in media res. <laughs> uh, action is going like Skeletor has already taken over Grayskull, yes. and He Man's uh, been uh, is on the run, and then that winds up uh, getting them to Gwildor and the Cosmic Key, and 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 you 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 go off instantly. Um, it does a very good job of introducing the characters piecemeal. Mm-hmm. Um, not as good as uh, a movie we're going to talk about later today, which I think does a excellent job of it but uh <laughs> yeah you know oh, yeah. um 
But um, th- this movie moves, and I think they do use the characters being apart as a way to be able to cross-cut so that you're really... Um, you're never stagnating with anyone for all that long. It feels like the scenes are, you know, doing real work, but then you get to bop around, um, which is also smart if you're, I know this is big budget for Canon uh, at the time, but also they're working with a lot of real world locations that aren't always um, fantastic. Empty real world locations, but real world locations nonetheless. Yeah. So being able to cut between them just kind of gives a variety to help it, you know, it feels uh, bigger than it is, even though no one lives on Earth. Yeah, no, it's Earth is an empty <laughs> planet. Um, I, I, I mean, but again, I, I, I think Frank Langella is great as Skeletor, and he, you know, he, he really kind of brings that performance under this mask. I don't even. I think the mask is okay, but he's really good. I think Evelyn's really good. I love that Evelyn can barely hide her contempt for her boss, and at the end, she's just like, "I'm out." Like she, she might be my favorite character in the movie because she just, she's just, just so over it all. Um, their beast man is not a great beast man. He, he is a bino. Yeah, he's a bino. <laughs> beast man in name only, Chris. Uh, this is not beast man. No. no. Um, and beast man's not even the leader of the the no. gang that's sent after He Man. No, it's he's, a, he's kind Carter. of after. It's this weird guy with hooks on his hands. He's annoying as hell. I, it's like, um, I don't know. Uh, it's uh but i mean you're right it's not it's not an it's not a bad movie it's just not a good masters of the universe movie you could do now i mean there's some things on masters of the universe that you couldn't have done in live action in 1987 for almost any price you know doing uh battle cat and you know, having he-man ride this yeah. you know giant green and yellow tiger would have been a tough sell now you could do it with the you know you know you put it on the computer machine and it comes out the other side and now you know he-man's riding the cat but you know back in the day it would have been hard and orco the floating would have been a a non-starter i get all that but you could have done something you could have man you could have thrown trap jaw in there you could have thrown merman um you know you 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 know you could have you could have had uh could have my one of my favorites ram man uh, I, oh, I, I, Ram Man's the best. I have a little Ram Man. I, I bought a little like I was at a toy shop not long ago, like a uh, a secondhand sort of used toy shop, and I there had a Ram Man there, and I I got Ram Man. I have Ram Man and Manny Faces on my desk. Those are the two uh, I was I was a big fan of back in the day. Um, my biggest problem with this movie though is that it everybody in this movie needs to act like an idiot for the plot to work. Like, they constantly do stupid stuff, and the only reason they do st- stupid stuff is so that the plot will work. Because if anybody had one brain, th- this movie would be over. Like, for example, uh, Skeletor, there's a two cosmic keys. Gwildor's got one, Skeletor's got one. And uh, at one point, you know, Skeletor, you know, he, he gets the second one, and he kind of fries it with this purple force lightning. Which, by the way, purple force lightning is awesome. Um, but he kind of fries it, and if he had, had fried it, he instead of if he had taken it rather than just sort of frying it, he really would have trapped them all on Earth, and Skeletor would have won. But no, he's got to be an idiot too. Yeah, it, and this is goes to the it is a live action cartoon for kids kind of thing. Uh, to give another example of what you're talking about, but I you know I'm grading the movie on a curve against of course the the, the intended audience. Um, but Karg, who is the inexplicable leader of Skeletor's minions on Earth to, to try and get He-Man, 
He is the kind of evil leader who goes around shouting everything. Uh, <laughs> is like, we're around the corner, get them! And you're like, well, you just... In the real world, you would have just let He-Man know exactly where you're going. You would have done hand signs. A uh, you know, a good a good leader would have done like yeah. you know those those kind of hand signs thing. You know that they do in 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 like, you know, movies. Uh, you know, <laughs> where the where the soldiers do hand signs like you know, stop. So you do the little that that uh, you know you you do the fist thing. And I'm like I, I don't know how it works, but you know it's I've seen it in movies. So it but it probably doesn't work like Karg in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're fairly certain of that. <sighs> Um, yeah, I, I, and, 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 you know, it's, I think part of it is, you know, they just, they didn't really, Canon at this time did not really have the budget to fully realize it. And, and what happened, like, for example, um, they set up sort of this big confrontation between He-Man and Skeletor, uh, and, you know, sort of a climactic battle. And much like what happened with both Flash Gordon and the Shadow, uh, the more elaborate fight was planned, but had to be scrapped due to budget and time. So in the end, you just have kind of He-Man and Skeletor kind of vaguely dueling in the dark, and um, you know it, it's uh, you know it's not it's not the you know like you could have done something. They, apparently, they they planned to do something that was really a spectacular fight, and then it was like at the end of the shoot, and we're like, hey, we don't, we've run out of money. We we're just gonna we're just gonna do it in the dark with stuntmen. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not what it could have been. And I think that's sort of emblematic of some of the the issues here. It's like I, I love canon, but this probably wasn't the movie for them. Yeah, there's one one great bit at the end. Um, it's early on when Skeletor's first come to Earth, where He Man uh, knocks down one of his uh, the evil minions, yeah, and steals the uh, I guess it's just alien surfboard. That you can fly around on. Although maybe it's a little more like oh, the yeah. Green Goblin glider. Yeah. And He-Man's on this thing and he um, knocks down with his sword another one of the evil minions who's flying. And it's uh, it's the hero moment in the, for me, yes. uh, VFX-wise in there. Uh, but that, I will say, because that scene is very similar to one in Highlander 2. And because mm. Highlander 2 is... Uh, is unbelievably bad it still looks better than than the scene in highlander 2 the similar scene on the move everyone loves it Uh. um i (laughs) i love um that so on on eternia clearly the phrase for goodbye is good journey good journey um no one says goodbye chris no one says goodbye good journey but and what what's funny to me is that there's the hand sign that goes with it but they clearly never settled on what it was because all the actors do it slightly differently and kind of tentatively. So it's just like, oh, there's no like they never they never decided on what this what the little good journey thing was gonna be. Um, yeah, I I I agree with you. It's it's I think a a perfectly good sort of '80s kids movie. Um, but you know, it, it coming sort of first of all, I think the Masters of the Universe phenomenon was sort of at the tail end of its run when the movie came out now i guess the hope was the movie could revive it but it didn't really work um and you know it it unfortunately did not uh did not do particularly well when it came out in august of 1987 uh wait i do want to mention is this the first post-credit scene teasing a sequel because there's that great bit at the end mm-hmm. where Skeletor pops up and I'll be back and it ends in a freeze frame which which doubles it makes it even more fantastic um, and I, you know obviously it had like 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off in a year earlier, which you know had that great poster. Go home, the movie's over. Um, but that wasn't teasing Ferris Bueller's too. You know, like this. This feels like oh, we're gonna do a scene at the end. You know, it's it it's one step. Uh, you know, from the hand picking up the ring at the end of Flash Gordon and the end question mark. Here you have the villain actually popping up full. You know, it's a I'll be back freeze frame. Um, God, I wish more movies ended with I'll be back in a freeze frame. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I like this movie. It's not, you know, it's, uh, it's not, it, 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 I think it's a little bit better than its reputation. It's just, it suffers from not being a really good adaptation of the source material, but it's not, it's not bad. Uh, you know, it's one of those movies. And then movies, the budgetary like, limitations. You yeah. Know, you know, it's one of those but... movies. If it's on, I'll watch it. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the um, music uh, by Bill Conti. Bill is, Conti, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Is nice. Uh, and you know, it's it's they have some nice matte paintings. They have they, again, they they that that throne room is a great set. Uh, obviously, they poured all the money into that set, yeah. and, and that was you know that was we're, we're, we're putting it all all of our chips on the Grayskull throne room. But um, but it's yeah, I like it. You know, it's it's not it's not great. It's not terrible. It's uh, you know. Uh, it's it is is maybe I think a better film than our second film today, uh, which is also another first for us. Our second film today is our first fully animated feature that we've had on the show. It is called Star Chaser: The Legend of Orin. In a distant galaxy, the darkened caverns of a cruel world hold the secret to a fantastic adventure. A quest to free a world from slavery and the universe from tyranny. A quest for truth, dignity, and freedom. There is a world above, a magnificent universe to which you can return if you have the courage. A quest for Star Chaser, the legend of Arlen. chess computer was the first inorganic mind to beat man. In a few hours, I will be calling checkmate. In the last such game, the humans and their kind will ever play. The greatest adventure of all time is here. The search for truth, the battle for freedom, an immortal struggle against the forces of evil. On an incredible journey to the edge of imagination and beyond. Legend lives on in a thrilling fight for survival. Star Chaser, The Legend of Arryn. Written by Jeffrey Scott and directed by Steve Hahn, Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin is one of the first movies to mix traditional animation and computer-generated animation, and was originally released in 3D back in the fall of 1985. Rob, I had never seen Star Chaser before now. I didn't see it back when it came out, despite the fact that it seems like the type of movie I would have been very interested in at the time, but I just completely missed it. Me too. I mean, so much so that, like a lot of these movies when we, you know, that we haven't seen before, if they come up for uh, for the show, I will at least know, oh, I always wanted to see that, or I saw it in the video store, or whatever. I... 
I have no memory of this movie even existing. I no. just, you know, for me, it was, this is down the, the memory hole. I have yeah. no idea. Uh, which is always a fun fun thing to find. Uh, it was, you know, it was like interesting. That. Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, tells the story of a young man named Orin, as you might have guessed, whose people have been enslaved for thousands of years and forced to work in the mines of the planet Trinia for the evil Zygon and his robot underlings. One day, Orin discovers a sword which contains a message telling him that the that there are, above the caverns there is a magnificent universe. The blade of the sword then disappears, leaving only the hilt. Orin and his girlfriend Elan go in search of this universe, leaving behind Orin's blind younger brother. They are almost immediately captured by Zygon, and while Orin manages to escape, Elan is killed, leaving Orin to climb up to the planet's surface alone. And there he finds a strange world full of bizarre dangers. He teams up with a smuggler named Dag Debrimi, who then takes him to another planet where Orin continues to search for the blade that matches the hilt. Uh, eventually he teams up with a princess named Avania, and together they learn the history of the bladeless hilt, along with, and along with Dag, return to Trinia to defeat Zygon once and for all and free his people. Rob, Star Chaser The Legend of Orin is a movie made for absolutely no one. <laughs> it is, it is, there are parts of it that are pretty darn brutal. And, you know, like, it's just, it's too simplistic for adults, but it's too adult for kids. And I don't know who they were making this movie for. It, it does at times feel like the filmation animators of He-Man wanted to go do their own thing. Yeah, and they, they broke they, bad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, in, and look, this is not my favorite film. But I will say it made me nostalgic. Um, because as you go throughout this film, there are moments that are enjoyable because this is from an era when animated films sprung from animators, especially yes. in the uh, when you're not talking about from Disney. You right. know, you're, you're in some of these other studios. And they do a lot of things just based on the look of the animation and is it cool and are the visuals great? And um, it's, it's nice to see that look, obviously we're writers. I, I, I enjoy a good story. And I think a lot of the animated movies that are coming out now are, are brilliant, but you know, it's just a different movie entirely to come through the, we're going to workshop the, the story, you know, six ways to Sunday and do animatics and then, take out whole sections and, and put them in that's, and look, you produce some great movies that way. This is much more, uh, twisted animator minds going, Hmm, what kind of weird wormy things could come up in this? And then weird wormy things are going to come up. I think I texted you at one point. If you like synthesizer music and animated grotesqueries, I guess this is the movie for you. Um, and we'll, we'll walk you through a little bit because it's there's some weird stuff. Like the the beginning of this oh, yeah. movie where we see all the slaves being addressed by Zygon has a very Temple of Doom feel. Even like the layout very of the much. air, like feels very like there's that moat that separates the the like the 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 leaders from the from the enslaved people, uh, just like in Temple of Doom. Um, they kill the girlfriend so quick and so brutally and it really took me by surprise i'm just like oh oh hold on this is not uh you know this is not a team effort here he is going off alone and uh of course he gets another girlfriend by the end of the movie so it you know it it, it does feel like oh yeah forgot about that chick 
Uh, you know, I mean, hey, I guess you got to move on, but come on, little, a little bit of time. Um, once Orin makes it to the surface, he encounters these things called mandroids, and they are these half-robotic, half-organic creatures whose remaining flesh barely covers the metal endoskeletons underneath. And I found them incredibly disturbing. It was like, oh, you know, like one's got like, one's got like on one hand, the one arm is a mechanical arm and the other arm is like a human arm that's tied on. And it feels, it's super, like, it's honestly, it's more kind of visually disturbing than like the, the Terminator. It's sort of late in the original Terminator movie where he's kind of got half the face removed. But it's just like, there's something about this that felt really like upsetting. <laughs> yeah, and... I mean, they are weird, freaky mandroids, but who act kind of like the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes. part two, where <laughs> they are just like all over getting your limbs and they're fighting with each other about who's going to get which part. And it yeah. is creepy. Yeah, it's re it really is. Uh, and then this is the point where he meets up with the smuggler Dag, who I couldn't help think, you know, he looked like the Looney Tunes caricature of Humphrey Bogart. And it really, I don't know, there's something about it that really like disturbed me in that way. Uh, and he insists on calling Orin Water Snake. And I swear to God, if I go the rest of my life without hearing those two words together again, I will be okay. Because he says it so many times. Yeah, it's it's a lot. But, uh, and while he has that Humphrey Bogart look, it... He's, I mean, he sounds like a low-rent Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I, I half expected him at some point to go, ring-a-ding-ding, water snake. <laughs> like, like what, how is this guy in space? Uh, like, yeah, I, I just, it's like the Rat Pack smuggler. Uh, oh, by the way, it, it, uh, Star Chaser, the title Star Chaser comes from the name of Dag's ship. When, and, and they only mention it once, and almost kind of offhand. So, but it's like if Star Wars was called Millennium Falcon, the Legend of Luke Skywalker. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, and they borrow, obviously, from, uh, you know, King Arthur stuff, because there is a literal sword in the stone, although you're yes. mining it out. The bladeless um, hilt, which I didn't understand how it worked for a while, because it was like, oh, it doesn't work on, like, organic people, but it kind of works on, like machines like it, it, it's it's it was a weird thing that I, I i eventually kind of got what they were going for but it took me a little time um uh, shortly after meeting Orin, dag steals a fembot named silica oh, while hijacking a load of crystals <laughs> you already know where i'm going on it now i yeah. listen rob i don't assume the worst i am a, i'm a very uh, optimistic person. So the first time I noticed a very clear shot of this female robot's ass, I thought it was just me being pervy and not the filmmakers. But then I realized that no, it's not just me because they continue to objectify this female robot for the rest of the movie. Yeah, there and there's that kind of like heavy metal influence, but it just... It just doesn't feel quite right here. Um, yeah. Not, uh, you know. Dag reprograms her, her personality circuits, which, by the way, happen to be located in her butt. Um, and as a result, she talks like the robot from Rocky IV after Polly reprograms it. And it's just 
Oh my god. And and then of course Dag immediately goes to try and sell her off, like in in this auction thing, which is just the whole thing is this off-putting. Like uh, then the rivalry develops between Silica and Dag's ship's computer, and it's like it it's it is some heavy duty. <laughs> like this is like you know, the computer tells Silica, well, the next thing you know, you'll be putting up curtains. As if that's what female robots do on spaceships, is they put up window treatments. Yeah, she also, like, dr- is draping herself constantly all over, um, you know, Dag and then and then Orin as well. Yeah, and yeah. It's just, um, I'm like, well, they beat Austin Powers to the fembot punch by a number of I, I years. Did. I mean, I, I and uh, uh, I mean, I get at one point she calls the she actually calls the ship, uh, the ship's computer, an ungrateful son of a bitch, which I thought was like, oh well, that's uh, again coming back to you know who is this movie for? Like, heavy metal is not a movie for kids. It's an animated movie, but it's not an animated movie for kids, which which was more uncommon at that time than today where you have a lot of animated content that is not that explicitly for kids. This is a case of a movie that is clearly targeted at kids but has some of that content that I'm like, I don't know why this is here. Like, for example, we get to the planet, uh, was it Bordogon, um, which is, uh, you know, a wretched hive of scum and villainy, uh, if you know what I mean. And um, some of the character designs there are really clear racial stereotyping like there is some that like are very unflattering racial caricatures you know of 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 middle easterners and and it's just in particular but but uh and asians as well like there was and 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 it was stuff that didn't need it just didn't need to be and it was like some of the background characters the guys that he tries to make the deal with it's all very kind of unpleasant in that you know, sort of through any kind of modern prism. Um, and they, they beat Total Recall to the three-boobed alien by about five years, which again... Exactly! A full five years before Total Recall gave us a pair and a spare, uh, we get it in, in this... But Total Recall is an R-rated movie, not for kids. Yes, And And Paul that's Verhoeven. the thing. That's, yeah. you know, it's a Paul Verhoeven movie, not for kids. This is explicitly a kids movie, and I just, I don't understand why this is... Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a prude, but at the same time, I'm just, again, it, it comes back to who is this movie being made for? What target audience do they think this was going to be, uh, going to be, you know, going to be aimed at? Um, not long after Dag and Orin are separated, Orin meets Avania, who's actually not a princess, I should say, but she, she might as well be. She's the planet's, the daughter of the planet's governor, and that they fall in love instantly and for no reason whatsoever. Well, the, uh, the story demanded it, Chris. I guess that's it. <laughs> but like, yeah, Oren quickly forgets the girlfriend who died a few hours earlier. And, you know, I mean, um, and Oren and Ivania learn that the bladeless hilt has been used for more like than a thousand years to vanquish, a thousand years earlier had been used to vanquish a tyrant called Nexus, which of course leads to the revelation that Zygon is actually a robot and he himself is this tyrant nexus and has been trying to rebuild his empire uh, all along so the the hilt is designed specifically uh to defeat uh zygon aka nexus um and it, it's crazy to me because zygon i think it's about has been rebuilding secretly for about yes. 1200 years 
he says. Yes. And he's, this is why he has the humans mining, because he's taking the mining robots and turning them into a mining army. But after all of this, I'm like, oh, this is a guy who's, who ruled the galaxy or whatever and is secretly rebuilding to rule it again and is on the cusp. He only needs one more planet, but he can be defeated by three people. Yeah. And a robot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, um, it is not, it's not good. Uh, the, the most realistic and profound moment in this movie, though, comes when Oren goes back to the mines uh, to free his people and he reveals the truth to, to, to the people and they don't believe it. And that, I was like, well, that, that feels like you tell the people the truth and they will not believe it. And that, that was one of the, the, the thing in the movie that hit home the most uh, in this day and age of, of fake news. Uh, I, I was like, oh, well, you tell the people the truth and they, they won't believe it. Um, and it's I, a literal, and again, literal representation of Plato's cave in this instance because he's going yeah. down and you have all yeah. the, the shadows being thrown around from the, the fires. Um, it's interesting. Uh, and of course we get a final fight between uh, between Orin and Zygon. Zygon gets his hand cut off, revealing it to be mechanical in a shot very similar to that of uh, In Return of the Jedi with Darth Vader's hand. Uh, and at the end of the film, okay, the end of the film, <laughs> Oren loses the hilt that he's been carrying with him this whole movie. And then it turns out that he had the power to defeat Zygon within him all along. And the blade sort of emerges from his hand and he, he cuts him in half and, 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 uh, and, and wins the day. And, you know, it's a very Wizard of Oz moment, but it's also very similar to... You know, the Schwartz was in you, Lone Star. It was in you. <laughs> yes. It was oh. fun to watch these two back to back, not knowing oh that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I had no idea. And I was just like, oh, my God. Um, and then after after he defeats Zygon, he, his, he can now inexplicably cure his little brother's blindness. I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah, I I don't know that either. It's very bizarre. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, um, you know, it, again, it, it, the twist at the end of, at the end of, of Star Chaser, the Legend of Orin is basically the same thing as the end of our next movie, Spaceballs, um, which, uh, you know, again, it, it, it is, is clearly of the three movies we'll talk about today. Spaceballs is, is a gem, uh, from Mel Brooks, you know. Uh, it just an all-time classic. Spaceballs. There it is, Planet Druidian. And underneath the air shield, 10,000 years of fresh air. We must get through that air shield. We will, sir. Once we kidnap the princess, we can force her father, King Roland, to give us the combination to the air shield, thereby destroying Planet Druidia and saving Planet Spaceball. Everybody got that? Spaceballs, the movie. Princess Vespa spaceship within range, sir. Good. What's going on? It's either the 4th of July or someone's trying to kill us. Now we will show her who is in charge of this galaxy. If you do not give me the combination to the air shield, Dr. Slotkin will give your daughter back her old nose. Only one man 
and his trusted companion can save planet Druidia from disaster. Okay, Eagle Five, coming in. Lone Star. First, they must learn the secrets of yogurt. Yogurt? I am the keeper of a greater magic. The Force? No, the Schwartz. Avoid capture on a distant planet. Come up to comb the desert, you hear me? Comb the desert! Found anything yet? We ain't found... Battled the entire Spaceball army. Holy! And escape the clutches of Dark Helmet. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. Abandon ship, proceed to escape pods. Jack, what's the matter with this seatbelt? When does this happen in the movie? Spaceballs, the movie. How do I know you're not making faces at me under that thing? Uh, written by Mel Brooks, Ronnie Graham, and Thomas Meehan, uh, and directed by Mel Brooks, it's a science fiction satire originally released in 1987, and while it principally spoofs Star Wars, it also has its sights set on Star Trek, Alien, Planet of the Apes, and many others. And... Honestly, the first thing I want to say is about Spaceballs is this movie is brilliant and it's hysterical. And if you've seen this movie and don't love it, I'm not sure you have a sense of humor whatsoever. Because my God, it holds up great and is a classic. Yeah, so much of it as, as uh, yeah, so much of the humor, it's so varied. You yeah. get like old vaudeville type stuff. You get meta breaking the fourth wall stuff it's this movie is constantly referring to the fact that it's a movie oh yeah um oh in in to great effect you know you'll you'll get moments where characters crash into the camera crew you get the the absolute my, one of I, it might be my favorite bit in the film is the oh, the stunt uh, doubles when they when they get out the space balls the movie video oh cassette. well that that scene is that scene is <laughs> is brilliant it, it is it is arguably my second favorite um uh, bit in the movie. We'll get to that in a second. For those who don't know, the plot revolves around the residents of planet Spaceball, who having squandered all of their planet's atmosphere, attempt to steal the air of the neighboring planet Druidia by kidnapping the king's daughter, Princess Vespa. The king hires mercenary Lone Star to rescue the princess from the Spaceballs and their evil lord, Dark Helmet. Um, the movie was originally titled, by the way, Planet Moron. Until Brooks heard of another script called Morons from Outer Space. Uh, and ILM actually did the post-production work on this film. Um, it's, it, and it looks great. It's, it, it stars Bill Pullman, Daphne Zuniga, Rick Moranis, John Candy, Joan Rivers, Dick Van Patten, George Weiner, and of course, Mel Brooks. Uh, and, and it's just... Uh, this movie's just a delight. Yeah, and when you talk about ILM, I mean, the I don't know if they specifically did the model work, but the model work so and the good. ships, I mean, they're fantastic, um, which it has to be if you're if the joke's going to play. It yeah, has and to look good. And in that, because they spoof the opening shot. Yes, they of have Star the, the Spaceball One is incredibly long to ridiculous effect. It, and yes. and it's a perfect example. The quote I read from Mel Brooks talking about a funny effect 
is a real effect with some extension. And that absolutely applies very specifically mm-hmm. to the opening shot of, of Spaceball One, which mimics uh, the original Star Wars. Uh, and it's just... Uh, apparently they sent the script to George Lucas, uh, who gave his blessing. Uh, Lucas's one stipulation uh, was that they couldn't make Spaceballs toys because they would compete with the Star Wars action figures. But, um, Rob, I'm just going to say it. I don't know if I've ever felt better or more accurately represented on screen than by the character of Dark Helmet. Because I feel <laughs> like he, he kind of captures... A lot of my essence, for good and ill. Um, I I knew it. I'm I'm surrounded by assholes. Careful, you idiot. I said across her nose, not up it. Sorry, sir. Doing my best. Who made that man a gunner? I did, sir. He's my cousin. Who is he? He's an asshole, sir. I know that. What's his name? That is his name, sir. Asshole. Major Asshole. And his cousin? He's an asshole too, sir. Gunner's mate, first class, Philip Asshole. How many assholes we got on this ship, anyhow? Yo! I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. It's so got Every line in this movie lives... Like, there are so many lines in this movie. I saw this in the movie theaters in 1987, and there have been lines that have been living rent-free for, for 30-plus years. Um... My all-time favorite sequence in this movie is the ludicrous speed sequence. It's amazing. It is just an all-time classic that may only be topped by Rick Moranis's face when he's watching back the ludicrous sequence in the, the bit that you referred to earlier when they're watching the movie yeah. within the movie, and it's just amazing. Uh, and that leads to one of those, the ludicrous speed hat, the end of it is one of those lines that I've remembered forever, which is uh, what barf, I believe, when uh, Spaceballs <laughs> 1 goes to ludicrous speed and way overshoots uh, Lone Star and the Winnebago. Uh, and you see not the star trail. Yeah, they've, yeah. Gone, they've gone plaid because <laughs> ludicrous speed isn't just streaking stars. It's, it's oh, plaid. It's so good. It is you. so good. Um yeah, I, I I want a full-size yogurt statue in my backyard. I First, I need a backyard. But if I had a backyard, I would immediately start looking for a yogurt statue to put in it. Because uh, that thing is amazing. Um, and I would buy every single item available for sale in Yogurt's Spaceballs store. Including the flamethrower? Of course. You might need it if a murderous hippie lands in your pool. <laughs> Uh, the combing the desert bit is one of the all-time greatest visual gags of all time. Um, oh my god, it's so good. And Dark Helmet's desert gear is my favorite costume. Like, his regular costume is great, but his desert gear with the giant pith helmet that opens the, yeah. the face thing is incredible. Um, and I love that bit, too, because it uh, it gets to... How, you know, everyone in this movie is is kind of stupid, but you know, in a hilarious way. Yeah. Where Darth, you know, uh, whatever Colonel Sanders is Colonel asking Sanders. Darth Helmet, "Are we being too literal?" <laughs> and Darth Helmet says, what? "No, they said to comb the, the desert. desert, so we're combing the desert." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, it's being uh, Dark Helmet uses the same gag to lure Vespa out that Eva Lynn used on Courtney Cox in Masters of the Universe. 
Yeah, the parent. The vision um, of the parent. Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's so good. It's and oh, the other thing about this movie is, aside from being hysterically funny, is incredibly well constructed. Like it's it, like the characters are good. The the character arcs are good. Like the 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 story beats are strong. Like this is not just a, a series of gags. It is a very well built movie. Yeah, I mean the first twenty minutes of this thing. Uh, I referenced it a little earlier, but uh, the, the character introductions and the setting the stage for everything is so top-notch in this movie. Oh, yeah. It has as many moving pieces as Star Wars. I mean, there's, yeah. it's, you know, has, a, you know, a somewhat expansive cast. Obviously, you're with, with certain members of it more than others, but it is a lot of characters to get through. There's even a fair amount of exposition to get through. It's a little yeah. easier for them because in a comedy, you can make light of the fact that you're doing it. Um, everybody got but that? still, that's a great bit. That is such um, a great bit. Uh, but, yeah. you know, I, I, I saw an interview with Mel Brooks where he was talking about how you, you, need, you need to give the audience information because with information comes stakes. You can have a funny sketch, and, that, and that's fine. But if the audience doesn't understand what the plot is, they're not, then, then you're not going to have... The, the actions are not going to come with meaning. You can have a funny gag, but it's not its not going to carry the same weight as if you know, okay, they're trying to steal the air. This is their plan to do it. Um, and and so on and so forth. Uh, <laughs> it's got, I, I, Honestly, it's just so chock full of jokes. There's the bit where the, they capture the stunt doubles is so good. Um, and I, my, one of my favorite lines um, that is one of the, the less well-known, but it's like, the, all right, we're preparing the ship for metamorphosis. Are you ready, Kafka? God, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's indicative. I mean, the wordplay and the jokes, this is, uh, this is, it's, it goes from the very dumb, the very juvenile, all the way to making Kafka references that, uh, yeah. you know, for the, for the 10 year olds in the audience at the time was probably flying over the head. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But everybody that, gets I, everybody gets I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. Yes. <laughs> everyone gets that. Um, at the time everyone gets Pizza the Hut. Pizza. Um, and he looks so disgusting. I uh, love it's, it's how really, slimy. Yeah, yeah how it is, slimy. It's, well and, and then the, the his 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 major domo starts like eating him. It's really and can we can we just uh, spend a little time? Lone Star is Space Cowboy. From Beth yes, the stars. Yeah, I mean, he he's not? obviously intended to combine elements of Han and Luke. Uh, he's kind of a mix of both, but he's really, you know, a younger space cowboy from Battle Beyond the Stars. He's one whiskey belt away. Oh, aren't we all one whiskey belt away, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's you know, it's just, and it's kind of the the perfect kind of concluding film for this because it it really was. Not only did it spoof Star Wars, but it just it kind of spoofed this era of of science fiction. It it, it, it sort of serves as a button uh, for this time, and and you know the Star Wars stuff is on the nose. Like for example, there's there's it's again this speaks to the filmmaking. There's a scene where they're trying to escape from the prison, and and the way Mel Brooks he uses the shot. It's like a dolly shot in front of the actors, so they're running. Towards the camera and the camera's keeping pace with them, which is very similar 
it's basically the same shot that, that Lucas used when they were running through the Death Star in the original Star Wars. And it's just, again, it speaks to the sort of the level of filmmaking that, that Mel Brooks was bringing into this, uh, you know, which could have just been a kind of throwaway. It, it, it's what puts Mel Brooks on another level than other, you know, sort of satire-based filmmakers. You know, he, he just does things so well. Yeah, and even the the parts that, that you know, like Dark Helmet is very clearly a super parody of Darth Vader. Sure. There are other elements from Star Wars that they do change quite a bit, but where they change them, it, it does make things funnier. Um, so with their princess, and they have the king that she is yes. the daughter of, and he is dressed like, uh, like what... Uh, like a Disney king, like he's at a he's yeah. out of a Walt Disney animated film, and it's interesting because there's a couple of things in this movie that sort of prefigured developments that would come later in Star Wars, and one of them is that Star Wars, the original Star Wars, never has that idyllic planet like Druidia, and it wasn't until the prequels that we got Naboo, which really feels like Druidia. I mean, it's it's sort of everything's perfect and beautiful and well kept, and let's be honest, Kylo Ren is basically Dark Helmet. <laughs> no comments. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, again, if it, it, it's if you haven't seen Spaceballs, you know, it, it's and 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 you like it's just it's so good, and it feels you know again it feels like sort of the 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 button on this era. Um, you know, it came out in 1987, which was 10 years after the release of the original Star Wars, and um, you know, it's sort of after that, you know, you'd had. You know, Dune had kind of been a big, you know, unfortunate commercial, uh, not a commercial success a few years earlier. And you start to see less sort of space-centric science fiction films for a while. And, and you know, the, uh, by the, you know, the, the interest, by, by 87, 88, the Star Wars phenomenon had run its course and would never be heard of again. Yeah. It uh, went away and... Uh, and never came back. These old gems for you now. Yeah, you know, people... Yeah. Obviously, I kid because uh, we live in a world inundated with Star Wars. But it, it's interesting to remember that there was a period in the late 80s where that kind of seemed true. Like the original trilogy had concluded. The toy line had come to an end. Uh, the long-running Marvel Comics series had been canceled, as had the two animated series. And there was this period for a few years in the late 80s, early 90s, where kind of Star Wars felt like it was a thing that was over. Uh, and then, you know, in the 90s, you then had that revival begin with the Timothy Zahn novels and the Dark Horse comic series. And then over the course of the decade, you know, sort of you got more and more Star Wars stuff. You got video games like Dark Forces and uh, X-Wing and TIE Fighter. And, and then eventually culminating with the release of Star Wars Episode One. But that's, you know, that's sort of another era entirely. Um, and I guess that I mean this this sort of brings us to the end of our initial Star Wars series. I I have had a terrific 10 weeks uh during which we've covered 26 films, which is kind of amazing. Um Rob, as I as I asked at the end of our uh get me another Batman series, uh what have we learned? What have we learned, Rob? I mean with this with this series in particular, it's and it's only our second series of examining films this way. Um it is amazing how just the variety that yeah. one gets. What when that pebble drops in the pond, the ripples don't necessarily always go where you think they will, and yeah. that's uh, that's a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's it, uh, 
for me, what I found is that the most successful movies were not the ones that mimicked the minutia. Uh, unless you're talking about a, a, a spoof like like Spaceballs or something like that, but instead the ones that sort of captured that same spirit, um, you know. And I, I also think that that one of Star Wars' biggest contributions was giving us a kind of visual language to tell popular science fiction adventure stories, or or, or perhaps more accurately, bringing a sci-fi sensibility to a wider audience. Because I think after Star Wars, it becomes easier to tell a particular type of sci-fi adventure story because the wider audience already has a touchstone for it yeah which i mean you see here you cannot parody something unless everyone knows it right uh so space balls can't happen and unless uh star wars has changed the visual language and changed the audience uh in a in a fairly profound way yeah uh, I also think it led to just in general a, raw, a revival of sort of swashbuckling adventure stories in cinema, which perhaps had been dormant for a few years beforehand. I think, you know, movies like Superman or Raiders of the Lost Ark were made possible due to the success of Star Wars, uh, even though they wouldn't necessarily fit in, uh, in this particular series. And obviously we're going to do the bonus episodes. We're going we're gonna to sort of stretch out from the science fiction genre a little bit more. But... Um, you know, I think it just kind of ushered in an era of film. And again, there are people who'd say that it changed filmmaking too much. That 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 now, in a sense, Star Wars was so successful that everything tried to be Star Wars. Um, you know, in, in a way that uh, that was not the case. You know, in you know, in the early the early to mid seventies. And I, I get that, but I also think that that it brought something wonderful to cinema too. Yeah, and what what I found interesting on top of all of this, off of what you're saying, is that in Batman. Batman is a world where franchises kind of exist and movie studios are trying to do that. Yeah. But especially early on when people are trying to follow in Star Wars' wake, they're really looking at a story and a movie. Yeah. And that maybe two or three movies, but it really was a singular story and it wasn't necessarily a go on forever type thing in people's minds. And it just it's interesting in that the the swings that people took based off of that are, are wildly different than, oh, uh, we're trying to make a movie series that's going to go on for 20 years right. or something like that. Yeah, no, it's it was, it, it, and it shows just how, how different things were, at, you know, in the in the late 70s to the early 90s, you know, because that, that Batman movie, you know, exists in a post-Star Wars landscape. It's arguably the sort of one of the most significant blockbusters since Star Wars. Uh, Rob, any favorites out of this series? Um, I, I, you know, uh, it's been, I mean, we've had 26 films and, and you know, uh, uh, we've had some good, we've had some bad, and we've had some really, really weird ones. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, I will say, let, let's, let's just take off the table the excellent, excellent film. Like, I'm not going to put Alien at the top of my list because sure. it is at the top of the list and people would know, you know. If we're looking at, I, I really, oddly enough, I really, really loved Message from Space. And yeah. It is, it's just so funky. And it's it's definitely one of my favorites of the uh, the films that I hadn't seen coming into this. Yeah, you know, I I agree. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously Flash Gordon is one of those ones that continually to, to revisit. Um, as well as both the Glenn Larson uh, series, the Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. At some point, I am just going to watch the entire... Because I've watched Battlestar Galactica relatively recently, like within the last, you know, 
five or seven years I've watched the Battlestar Galactic series, but I haven't watched the whole Buck Rogers series, and I'm kind of I'm keen to do it. Um, but there were other things like you know surprises like Battle Beyond the Stars. I never expected that to be as really as good as it was. And of course, the 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 movie that I've just taken into my heart is You're the Hunter from the Future, because it's so weird and I love it so. Um, the Ice Pirates is another one. Uh, you know, I just, I just loved. I'm working and, uh, on my replica glaive right now. <laughs> the um, glaive is a stupid weapon. I, I keep <laughs> cutting myself though. But yes. <laughs> oh, uh, but, you know, I, I just, I think there's, it's so many great and varied films that it, it's been, it's been a real, uh, it's been a real joy. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed taking this journey through the films inspired by the original Star Wars. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we will be back in two weeks with our first Get Me Another Star Wars bonus episode, where we'll explore the fantasy films Clash of the Titans and Excalibur, two of my favorites, so I'm excited to talk about them. And then two weeks after that, we'll be launching our next series, very different, Get Me Another Boys in the Hood. August 2nd, coming your way. Thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. And if you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram and get me another pod. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, uh, recommend to, to people that you have no strong feelings about either way. Uh, and please join us again in two weeks as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. And may the Schwartz be with you.